0: welcome to wmi plus at home podcast i'm gabby sappington the executive director of world music institute and thank you for listening wmi plus at home brings you into the personal environments of renowned artists from around the world as they share stories and music in an intimate conversation with a fellow musician journalist or ethnomusicologist these talks were originally presented as live webinars and you can watch video recordings of all our past at home sessions on our website and YouTube channel. WMI Plus at Home is supported by a grant from Con Edison and world music lovers like you. We thank you and hope you enjoy the conversation.
1: And Paul, thank you. It's great to be with you.
0: <laughs> I've, I've actually known you for maybe more years than I want to admit uh, or <laughs> at this point. But uh, And we know, you know you've had a... 30 year professional career. But I think my first awareness of you was really around the time when you were just taking up Irish music. At that point, you were only eight or nine. I believe when you started taking lessons with the Martin Mulvihill there in the Bronx. And you were obviously in the right hands of a a master from Ireland. And I wonder if you just, let's start by just telling us how your parents decided put you into Irish music and how you felt about it in those early days.
1: Sure, Paul. Thank you. I'd love to start. And, and it's uh, always a nod to our parents, our teachers, I think, and um, being blessed to have just such supportive upbringing. Uh, when you kind of learn uh, your culture, learn your a vengeful passion in life. And uh both my parents, John and Annie, uh they came from County Mayo in the west of Ireland. And I see folks you have beautiful Claire behind you, Paul, where your parents came <laughs> from. Uh my parents, um, they they had to leave Ireland in the fifties like so many others. It was tough times and And um, America welcomed them. They came into New York. Uh, I kind of joke that I'm from the 33rd county of Ireland, county Bronx, New York. It it could be arguably (laughs) that, but, um, and they just loved all things Irish. Of course, it was such that connection. Uh, Dad used to play records of uh, the music, the traditional music and other music of Ireland uh, in the house through recordings. Um, and he would also kind of play hee-haw and these, this great bluegrass music. So I was kind of myself and my sister Maureen always listening to the music, um, would go back every summer. Thankfully, dad used to work for the airlines and it was a little perk that we'd get over to Ireland, spend the two months of vacation over there on the family land in Mayo. Most cousins and grandparents were there still. So it was a wonderful upbringing. And then, of course, Martin Mulvihill, uh, an amazing Irish-born teacher from uh, Limerick and Kerry Border there in West Limerick, uh, was teaching in the Bronx in those years, uh, taught hundreds of kids, as you know, Paul, the uh, fiddle, accordion, button accordion, uh, flutes, whistles would be going, and there'd be two big rows of us in in the back of a little pub or or the Shamrock Club in Bainbridge Avenue in the the Bronx. And uh, it was a great upbringing. Martin would just kind of sit over you there with the fiddle, and it was mostly taught by ear. You'd learn the pieces. You felt the the feeling of the tunes, the emotion of the tunes, the rhythm of the tunes that I think in many folk traditions and the folks from World Music Institute certainly know this. I'm sure it's in many, many folk traditions. That's really a wonderful way to learn. Of course, notes do help uh, naturally, but Martin leaned a little bit more toward the oral tradition. Learned from Martin, and um, it was great. It was a great upbringing in, in that sense. Went over to Ireland many times, competed over there. But but it was starting with the love of the tradition and just a wonderful teacher who just exuded the joy of
0: the music. It's kind of amazing when you think about it. You mentioned it's like the 33rd County, but here you are in, in a particular enclave in the Northwest Bronx that was very Irish, you know, both the, through the church and then through the classes. So you had a lot of your your peers And classmates, somebody like Joni Madden, too, who were involved in the music as well. But then you had this advantage of spending two months in Ireland over the summertime, which probably reinforced it as well, didn't it?
1: It definitely did, Paul. Yeah, And I think just getting back to the source, you know, getting back to Ireland, getting back to the people, the land, the language, you know, it was a big part of it, even though I didn't realize it at the time and really did it reinforce the music, the tunes, the, the lilting of the of the music as well. Um, we were chatting earlier about just the, the music and, and and Martin, the way he, he did teach. Um, and and maybe if that's all right, right, I play a little tune, like some yeah. of the tunes I did learn. Actually, my first jig that Martin taught us, the geese in the bog, which is pretty appropriate because in Mayo, there was plenty of bog. Um, as far as the mile can see, I can see. But this this is a lovely little tune um and then maybe i'll go into another jig after that one. uh so again a lovely swing he, he just would, would just play
0: Great, great, Irene. Um, Your your own solo ca- career was punctuated by uh, si- great success at the Flaws in Ireland. And they would have been the Flaws here in North America that would qualify people to go perform in Ireland and compete about the best in, in Ireland and Britain. And uh, you won nine All-Ireland Fiddle Championships yourself during your maybe 15 years or so of competing or about give or take and um that's outstanding in itself but i think one of the other things that probably helped spur you on was just the fact that you were taking music with so many other people and there was a socialization that went along with it too you know both in your classes weekly classes but definitely on the trip to ireland you know for flower and and getting the bands ready and all of that i'm sure there was a lot of pressure and everything there and uh and to be Quite honest, back in the seventies, when you think about it, um, Irish Americans were trying to prove themselves in some ways in traditional music too. So uh, I brought that brought some pressure to bear, I'd say. But uh, I think the socialization is something probably kept you kept a lot of you at the music, um, pretty much. Isn't that right?
1: It definitely did, Paul. And um, the socialization was key, especially for a little kid. Right? It wasn't the coolest thing to leave. You know, and a Saturday afternoon and go take your violin lessons, you know, your Irish music lessons or practice after school every day. Um, You weren't the hip kid for sure. But uh, it it was it was great because there was the other kids in your age bracket and group. And to have the Cayley bands uh, was wonderful. There'd be typically 10 kids in the band and maybe four fiddles, two flutes um, accordions, there's a snare drummer and a piano player, typically one of many kind of configurations. But it was great because we enjoyed practicing together. It made sense then. It wasn't just a solo yeah. thing that you were doing, but you, you were playing with other kids. And you, you, you're you right when, when you went, went over to Ireland in those years, late 70s, early 80s they would announce the different competitors, you know, there'd be folks from, of course, Clare, beautiful County in Ireland, known for the music for the listeners uh, tonight and, and uh, maybe Galway and, you know, some places all over England had a lot of amazing competitors because they were again, you know, so connected to the music. And then you'd hear maybe your name, Eileen Ivers from, the Bronx, New York, you know, <laughs> and usually like some kind of hushed tones would kind of come <laughs> over people. And yeah. and then actually my mother, God bless. She said, uh, I, she heard one time, well, you know, they don't have much homework there in the States, <laughs> you know, so they have a lot of time to play. It was just so funny. It was such a new thing. And then, as you said, a lot of us, thankfully were are getting recognized that, wow, you know, they're from America. They, they can play this music. They can uh, exude these emotions and feel and, the traditional styles are there. And again, thankfully to great teachers who passed that on. Um, so it was wonderful. I think Americans at that time were starting to get recognized that we were help preserving the tradition and, and just having it blossom. It, it was wonderful to, to see that. And I think for me personally, um, I wanted to to get better and it kind of helped, you know, getting more um you know more more chops in that area and just raising your your hopefully your level in that way as well as just again hanging out with a lot of people and, and 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 being part of sessions over there which is a big part as we know of Irish music there's the camaraderie and the friendship that is what it's really
0: about that's right and as a first generation Irish American myself i mean i, I when i look back on that period too i call it the the first golden age really of Irish American students here because they were three or four great teachers, uh, three of them from the other country, you know, the old country, as they used to call it back then. But you think of somebody like Maureen Glenn, too, also, in that particular time. But, I mean, the number of students they were teaching at the same time, and they had a real pride of place, you know, for very proud of the fact that these were New York students. And the same would have been, there was activity in Chicago and Boston, too. But, you know, for, for our purposes here, we'll stick to New York. And I think there was so much pride that I think you were involved in your earliest recording history would have been with the bands, right? Martin Mulvihill didn't even produce a couple of albums of his bands.
1: It was great. Martin, uh, yeah, and Mick Maloney, our wonderful friend, uh, helped to produce and and, um, help with the production and engineering of those. And it was great. I played a couple of solo tracks on the first two records there that Martin did, a couple of band tracks. And it's just lovely to have that little time capsule and you hear Martin playing on it. So just great music to kind of go back to.
0: Okay, yeah. And another time council was, uh, again, just acknowledge Mick Maloney too, but uh, mm-hmm. the great video documentary, one of the ones that you've been involved in, but certainly early on, did your mother come from Ireland? That was kind of a, you know, a bit of boasting, if you will, about what what really did transpire in Irish-American communities and how how, how they kept the faith. Yeah. Very much Absolutely. so.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It, it was important, I think, that, that connection and, you know, and, and just a quick, nod to the teachers today who are keeping it going in the Irish American communities as, as well as, you know, all, all over. Um, I've been through the years, so privileged to have played in so many places in our world. And you can go into a downtown Tokyo session, you know, in a little place over there and hear music from Japanese born musicians or Australia. And we've heard it all over little pockets in Europe and Scandinavia. And it, it sounds like they've really absorbed this music and has, have been living in Ireland. So I think that's a big point, and I often tell that to students that I my teach or master classes I do. You don't have to be born in Ireland to to feel this music to, to be a part of it. It's a joy, and it's something to be shared, uh, certainly worldwide.
0: And there's also a un- universality to music, anyhow. And you know, let's face it, you are from the Bronx, so the boogie down Bronx, as we like to say. So I, I imagine during your teenage years, your your ears were also listening for a lot of other sounds and rhythms and different things were starting to kind of permeate in your own mind that would come into play, you know, later on. We'll talk about that going on. But I mean, I would imagine during your teenage years, you would do an awful lot of that too.
1: No, absolutely. I think, you know, being in maybe any urban area, it it does lend itself to that. And I remember even, you you mentioned like Manhattan, but like the great Stefan Grappelli, you know, I, I would be able to hear him in the blue note, or Jean Luc Ponty, I've heard, another amazing jazz violinist. And then for me, certainly, hearing these masters of the violin, something clicked that, wow, I, I love the, the instrument I play. I love Irish music fiercely, but then there was also a very inquisitive part of me that said, well, I, I like those downward slides, those little blues notes they're getting into there. and And that really intrigued me to just, I guess, start to emote maybe in that way or uh, the elements of these great players was something that I I guess just rubbed off a little bit. And, um, you know, and I think the wonderful progression of Irish music is it is a living, breathing art form. and, And to do maybe a little bit of a blues slide or something, if it's in the same feel of what the tradition is and it's not you know, rubbing against the um, rhythm of the tunes or anything like that. It's its a personality thing. I think that's a, a wonderful thing. So just to, I think, really know your instrument to get to, and I always say this in live concerts, you could keep learning, I feel, the violin until your last days. It's such a challenging instrument that um he blends itself to to discovering more.
0: So um, I'm sure we're getting ready to go to, to college then. I mean, was it – um you got a full scholarship to Iona College, one of the great uh, colleges here in the New York area. Um, Irish Christian Brothers founded it and, yeah. and ran it. Um, was it a combination of your musical ability and your your kind of genius math- mathematically as well that helped win that scholarship? Or was it a combination?
1: <laughs> it's so funny, Paul. Like with, with immigrant parents... Um you know, we, we had, you know, my sister and I worked very hard for, you know, what you have, right? You, you would go out, and it's been funny, in those days, the Kaylee bands, we'd be playing in the little pubs in the, on a Sunday afternoon, and God rest my father would drive me out to Far Rock away, and we'd play in Duffy's Tavern, you know, and, and, and we'd go around with a basket, you know, the little, yeah, but it was great. We're playing at 14, 15 years old. Our parents are minding us, you know, watching us, but we're in these pubs having this social thing, and and playing, but, you know, saving for the college because our parents didn't have the opportunity to go to college. And, um, you know, we knew, well, it was on our dime. You got to work hard. It was instilled in us and education was important. So um, in high school, St. Barnabas High School in the Bronx, I had heard those years um, when I was there that if you graduated first or second in your class, you would have uh, a wonderful free scholarship there, full scholarship to a few of the colleges. And I just said, that's it, put my head down. I, I was a, a good student anyway, I did work hard and um, thankfully got the full beautiful scholarship to Iona. So I, I it lent me to be able through the grades to have it, but to just play a lot of music through those years and to kind of um, then just, you know, think about even leaving college and, and doing music but my mom's saying, no, 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 don't you dare, right? Stay with it. And and uh, fell into a discipline of mathematics, which I just loved. Um, uh, I, it was a wonderful, pivotal moment. In, uh, you know, when you meet folks right throughout life, that really hits you. Brother Heathwood, an Irish Christian brother, who – uh, I was chatting to him. I said, brother, I'd, I love, you know, aeronautical engineering and NASA. I had this wacky dream, because I'd love to work for that company. It just was, I could see it happening. It was my 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 real dream. And he said, Eileen, he said, so excited. Get a math degree. You could go anywhere from a math background. Wow. And the best bit of advice, because I put that down, got really into it. And then as, you know, you, you, you go through, you see it's very creative, you know, just trying to solve proofs. In the rusty brain, I couldn't now, now, but at all. But you know, back then, seeing the beauty, the elegance of math, the way it parallels music in a beautiful way, in a very creative way, um, in a very simplistic and elegant way, it it has a lot of parallels. I even did a couple of papers on it back in the day. And uh, Bach was a great writer in, in the mathematical field. His his fugues were often Fibonacci series numbers, and he would just pull from these incredible math genius that he had a musical genius. So. It was something I really um, I I, I kind of loved both worlds, and then you know later on people have asked me, well, have you used your math degree? And I never got the real day job, the day gig, but I've uh, I feel constantly use it through music, through um, maybe writing, composing, band arrangements, working with orchestras, in different parts of life. Um, it, right. it, it's it's. There's a logic to it. Obviously, there's ratios are all proportions in that. Not to bore our listeners here, but yeah, it's something I'm passionate about. And and even with master classes and when we do uh, in school programs, um, it's so important to see music in the schools because it goes hand in hand. It's the creative, the expression. World Music Institute are a big part of that. Of course, the arts and and sharing arts with everybody. It's, right. it's inspiring, especially when we have been lost without much of them for a good while now, it, it, it's extremely important, I think, in our world to to have that. And, and for kids to learn math and music and all those disciplines together, I think is really, really important. And never mind just that alone, but it makes us feel, it makes us emote, it makes us have these emotions and not get, you know, raw and just too distant. So wonderful. And thankfully, these, these arts are back live now again.
0: Yeah, they're very, very, very good. And it's interesting as you went along, and obviously you've got- You know, apply those math skills to, you know, your current situation with running a band and everything like that. You have to be very logical and you have to be very, you know, precise about a lot of things. So I'm sure that that holds you in good stead. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But here you are, you're gigging away on the weekends and every playing everywhere all around and with collaborating with a lot of different types of artists. And that, that would kind of be what you were doing as well. You tell a story about, well, I haven't heard the story, but you can tell us all now about this interview you went for, for a math job. And oh. that,
1: <laughs> that,
0: you, you that decided, was... <laughs> you made the decision there, <laughs> which was what?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, Paul. I, no, it was very funny when you think your life is going one way and then it quickly ma- makes a hard left turn. Um, sitting in, in, in a small room with a bunch of other young people, you know, getting, you know, that dream job right out of college and all, and all dressed, you know, the way you do in corporate America and whatever. And I just thought to myself, what the heck am I doing? You know? And I, 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 I just quickly, quickly got reaction, just, just had to leave. And, you know, it, it didn't occur, I think till even a good few years later that I just love performing. I love playing. I love everything that that's what's enrolled in it. I love, I love, you know, the chance to hopefully move people through, through that. And I think it was years later, even that I, cause I, I was going on for my master's and all that in, 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 in that, but you know, I, I, I wanted to keep playing. And I think later in Riverdance, those years, I, I said, this, this is what I think I, am meant to do. We all have our gifts in life. And, and I think just for me, playing, getting people together through music is thankfully some, a passion and it's been, it's been working out, which is
0: pretty good. Yeah. And you had a chance to play with a lot of very gifted, and talented people you know your your age and maybe a few years older than you you know it's going along so i'm sure that opportunity was there you got a chance to yeah. you know work with some really dynamic performers and even when you you came out with a an album with john whale and the box player fresh takes i mean that was really kind of a cutting edge album where a lot of people perceived it that way and some people thought it was you know, on the periphery, too. So maybe it wasn't everybody. But what it was what was clear that was coming to a recording on that was, you know, testing the music and drawing new boundaries along the way, which is when we see the progression or we look backwards, we see how important that was, you know, that point. Because, uh, you know, something, you know, something else you, will talk, you should talk a little later about, you know, Bob music and the the impression that some people had of traditional music that it was trapped it was trapped in its own ethos, and maybe it didn't, wasn't breathing properly enough on its own. And I think um, you were kind of testing that all the way through, just in your own way, um, doing what you're doing and playing and finding other people to collaborate with it. So you were breaking new ground pretty much. And at the same time, you know, you were a founding member of Cherish the Ladies, too, which was holding fast. that tradition as it was handed down from parents for the most part or other people so there's kind of there was a duality there that was really really important it's kind of when we look back at it and say it was equally important because how else how else would you inspire younger people anyhow to get involved in it
1: no good good point paul and and i think to your point too what you know for tradition it's interesting how does one define tradition do you go back to the days of O'Carolan, in 1700s in Ireland. Do you go back um, 100 years after that? Do you go back to the Michael Coleman era of the 1920s in New York when the wonderful Irish, you know, Sligo-born violinist, fiddler, uh, came over, and he played with a harmonic accompaniment of a piano. And the piano player must have been, I don't know the, the story or the history exactly, but must have came probably from somewhere in New York. It, Michael Coleman would be playing tunes and maybe g and, and and switching maybe chords, like for example, maybe this uh, tune, bunch of keys, and you know he'd be going from G and a distinct F chord there. But the piano player would just kind of stay in G the whole time, and Michael would be kind of going the tune would be going in a different way. So, you know, harmonic accompaniment has come, thankfully, a long way in, in our music. And, um, you know, the record you mentioned, John Whalen and myself did in the mid-80s, mid, mid 80s, um, was really, when I look back, actually, was a nice, you know, it was a traditional record. At the time, we were doing harmonies as a duet player, um, but accordion and fiddle and taking it out a little bit in that way. And Mark Simons was a great, great guitar player who had, had fatter chords than just your you know standard harmonic progression. He would maybe add some 9s or, or maybe some even fatter 11s or 13s like in, into certain chord patterns and just give the music a little bit more of an expanse. And it's so funny, as you say, fast forward to now music that's happening in our wonderful traditional Irish music scene. Players have been, I think... I've gotten a lot more educated on, on on music and what can work with Irish music and the chords, even the wonderful cherished ladies, although very much in the tradition, you know, their accompaniment can come, come a little bit outside quarterly at, at times. So, so there's a nice toggle I think of, of that progression. Um, and I think what's really important as well is, is a little pub session and, you know, wherever, west of Ireland or in in Manhattan, that's done in a very traditional way with maybe just the instruments of the tradition and no harmonic accompaniment is as interesting and as um, as wonderful, you know, and very important as maybe somebody who is saying, wait a minute, the baron has been our, our frame drum percussion instrument, the goatskin frame drum of Irish music. But the rhythm on that, I wish I had a baron here, but you know, is the same in a very interesting way as an African rhythm on an Shiko drum or a Jili that can do. So when you hear the rhythms and where that lay, that that for me, you know, kind of jumping in the 90s, I guess, and a lot of my solo recordings and the past while I loved, you know, the the rhythms of African music and bringing that a bigger palette of sound than just the drum of baron, you know, and and again doing it I think in a way that never dilutes the music but just kind of adds a bigger base of sound to it and and even bringing in bass guitar, upright bass, or perhaps. Um, we worked with the amazing Bagiri Kumalo from South Africa who worked with uh, Paul Simon on his Graceland record and his record with Paul for many, many years. And Bagiri, when I first played with him, you know, he, he he was like, Oh my God, Eileen, this music you'd hear in South Africa, you know, it's, it's the same, the same feel, the same. So all of a sudden, if, if you're thoughtful about how these instruments can be brought into the music. Um it's very exciting and and I'm 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 quite proud of the sort of the, the way um and, and and very blessed I feel to have found incredible musicians through taking me up to this this kind of place.
0: Yeah, you know, Kamati and also, you know, Shane Seacon and John Doyle. I mean think about it, I mean I, I think the the trajectory there was very much the living tradition. It really everything was moving very rapidly, you know, in from the nineties into into yeah, you know, to the arts but I think what we started to see at the same time was that people now people felt that they could make a living playing music this way I know the chieftains were successful you know 15 years earlier you know it's a professional bamboo there was only one of them <laughs> one group you know I mean nobody else had really tested it but now now this was becoming sort of a possibility and if you were you know so taken by the music and saw the possibilities and doing great things and innovating constantly, you know, and new forms. So this was something at what point did you say to yourself, I definitely want to be a musician. This is what I want to do. Was there, was there a certain moment?
1: Um, I think through the good question. Like I think through a few moments, Paul, I I remember even, you know, testing myself. Like I, I love the tradition as we chatted about, I learned it from a very, traditional player and went through all these competitions played in a very traditional way, ears got open, listening to other violinists, other other elements of, of music that kind of brought into it. And I kept saying, well, my heart wants to go here. Is it right? Is it right to the tradition? And I had that conversation with myself to make sure I wasn't harming it or, you know, I always think that to receive the gift of the music, is something that's really sacred. You hold on to that. You want to pass it on in a very traditional way, which I always do when I do teach, uh, as it was handed down to me and then have that person receive the gift of this music, make it their own, you know, go out. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, what the heart is, what it, what it's supposed to feel like, what it, what it is and, and put your personality to it, put your own life experience to it. I think though, when I started to see through these elements, um, that, you know, people were really coming in, Bigger crowds were excited with the music. They wanted to learn it. I uh, mentioned, you know, Riverdance was very pivotal for me because not only did uh, so many young people learn Irish dancing, it was all of a sudden, let's, let's learn this cultural dance that is incredible. I think one could, you know, we could chat a long time about this, but I think the way the dance has taken that path of being very intricate um, in the footwork, it also became a little bit more of a performing art where years ago, of course, the Sean dancers, the old style dancers were all about the rhythm of the feet, right? They were just kind of percolating and, and accompanying the music with the feet. But now there was like these gestures, it was a performing art that was breaking that fourth wall of a performance and, 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 and showcasing that, Hey, this is something I'm really passionate about. And and making it maybe a little bit more accessible to people who are were new to the the tradition. Similarly, I think musically, uh, in in Riverdance, Bill Whalen who wrote an incredible score for the show. And I tell you, for three years I was in the performance, and I, I honestly never got really ever sick of playing. You know this incredible music, and of course I I felt I try to make it a little bit unique each night as and little variations here and there. I had a few tunes that I could actually go to and change up myself each night, but it was wonderful. And I again we were very blessed to take it all over the world. And and you would see different audiences get very excited. Quick story. Um, when I first joined it was like 95 ish, uh June of 95. John McColgan and Moya Brennan. <clears throat> Moya, yeah. Uh incredible, the two wonderful uh, uh producers of the show were Moya Doherty and John McCulligan. And John really took me over as the real uh, director. He said, you know, Eileen, I know what you do. You have this wireless fiddle, you have this blue electric, you play through effects, you have some wah-wah pedals going on and this and that. I want you to leave the bandstand. This was in Hammersmith Apollo in in London when I first came. And I want you to leave and come out to the main stage. And like we're chatting, Paul, I said, oh, but no, John, you know, it's a traditional music. It's not what it's supposed to be. I love the tradition, but I'm really, um, you know, I I don't want it. There's no stepping out. There's no stars. There's no, you know, we're all in this together. Right. Long story short, he said, I, please, I'm begging you just come out a quarter of the stage the first night long story. Okay. I came out, came back and he goes, now, <laughs> I go at halfway point, please. Right. So that little red, little dot of the halfway all right. So I did long story short. I, I obviously he got me, you know, he, he reeled me in and, and, and I, I, I was feeling this, um, years earlier, I, I had toured a, a year with the wonderful R&B duo, Daryl Hall and John Oates, and they had a great player, Charlie Deshant, on saxophone. He had a wireless sax and he would just kind of go around and break that fourth wall, literally, and go into the audience and go around, right. which I do in our own shows, my own shows. Now I, I just, that rubbed off on me as well. And that performing sense really was something that, you know, Hey, if it's getting people excited there and there to perform is an absolute privilege. Uh, I have a lot of respect for people's time when they come to shows and I want to give it my all. I want to show the joy that I feel the emotion I feel. And that's when it was hitting me. Wow. You're making a difference in people's lives. And every single night after shows, I I always go out to the lobby. I want to hear from folks. I want to hear their stories. Maybe they have questions. Maybe they have different kind of, um, you know anecdotes that I want to hear, or maybe they were moved. And oh gosh, again I don't want to bore listeners, but stories of maybe sickness and them coming out to a concert, and and then being moved, or or uh, losing a loved one, and then being there was emotion t- attached to it. it. It just it goes on and on, and it's a great great way to have a, a living. Feel so blessed so many times. So breaking that fourth wall, I think was was huge for for me to understand and say. Yeah, this is this is a, a pretty good gig. It's a pretty good way. Thank you for, you know. It was
0: it, it was such an excellent opportunity, and I just think you know, you were smart to uh, to jump at the chance to do it. And then you were you brought the show to New York too, right? When Riverdance came and and they performed at Radio City Music Hall. I don't, yeah. I'm not quite sure well, what year that was, but um, it was
1: oh gosh, I'm not sure either. Maybe ninety six ish, ninety seven. Okay, and um, it's funny. Uh, I, I, I was actually subbing for the original violinist, Maura Branagh, and it went back to the show Riverdance, went back to the point in, uh, Dublin, huge theater out, out there. And, uh, after the run in Hammersmith, the, the violin role changed very much. And, and I was asked to stay on, but I said, Oh, sorry. I was filling in for where it's her show. It's her, you know, gig. And, um, I, I, I know John and, and and the staff were kind of saying, but we're telling you, we'd love you to kind of continue or whatever. But I I, I said only if I speak tomorrow. And she was so funny. She she was great. She was in. She's an incredible classical and uh, fiddler as well. And. Um, she was in a big bunch of projects and she actually gave me the blessing. So then it was, I felt great about it. And then the role kind of kept growing and and changing and to play as a Bronx born kid in, in radio city, as you mentioned, I mean, we had six weeks there, eight shows a week. Um, And it was sold out for all these years and I, I, all these weeks. And I remember kind of driving into the city, going up to, you know, radio city and my uncle John God bless. He used to work there as a doorman, and I say this is awesome. You know, this is like yeah, this yeah. is a incra- great. I see, would see Riverdance there, and and it was just incredible. You know, so um, a lot of great opportunities. Yeah,
0: That's a great thing. I, I think everybody was thinking at that point that uh, you know that Riverdance was actually lifting the whole community in many ways. You know, both you know on the dance, we saw you know dance schools, of course you know, just shot up exponentially as a result of it. And the art form, you know, progressed as well. But it was true for the music, too, as you mentioned, Bill Bill Whelan and the score, you know, which is kind of the thing that I, I always equated to it was kind of, uh, it was around the same time that the Celtic Tiger was also taking place. Now, that has its, its pluses and its minuses. But I think the thing about the river dance and Irish music and dance is that it really was a coming out party. In many ways, it was a worldwide celebration. It was an opportunity for people to make a living at of debt that really was only for a few people, you know, before in a few groups. So I think uh, what it did and, and also it just huge boost the confidence to younger people in Ireland, you know, in the music and dance and by extension, America, too, at the same time. So they, you know, a lot of people, people like you were heroes the people because of what you did and they all knew your background was the same as as theirs, you know, growing up. And so they just were so thankful for you to do that. And I think it it gave you the opportunity then too, to to start being more creative on your own too, you know, form your own band and to do some of the things that, you know, you wanted to do or give you time and, and the opportunity to do it, you know. And some of it has to do with, you know, your kind of, The immigrant soul experience. I think you wanted to reflect a lot of things in your music and in your band, and taking these things, these these tangents, sort of that were coalescing now in your music and your act and your band. So it was, you know, you really took it and ran it and took it that much further and put every.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I I did. It it was funny. I I, I, when I left Riverdance, I I felt so grateful, and but yet I knew it was time to kind of move on for me. And it was funny. It was just coming to Broadway, New York. But I, I, I just said, no, this is the the logical time. And '99 formed the the Eileen Ivors with Immigrant Soul, and and I just always say, my brothers on the road. We had an incredible run, a bunch of records. Um, the lat- latest, latest few years, um, Universal Roots, which I kind of put together with incredible players, and and again, focusing more a little bit on the Americana <clears throat> aspects of Irish music, and of course how it came through the heart and soul of the immigrants to, to this country. And I did a recording the Beyond the Bog Road that really focused on the story of coming out of Ireland and how, you know, these same tunes are known in American music. And again, that wonderful full circle experience of the music coming and uh, you know, and, and as well as the songs and the vocal, that high lonesome sound came from the immigrants and the emotions, and it's wonderful now where we are. You can see that the music from America has gone back to Ireland and is really kind of part of you'll hear like a Cajun tune in Irish music um, in a session as, as easily as you would, you know, yeah. um, a, a, an Irish couple of tunes as well. So,
0: well, you and you mentioned the fact, you know, hee haw before, you know, that was, I mean, oh, we think about it as, you know, corn poem humor kind of thing but actuality you know the people who were on that show some incredible musicians you know who they were kind of the top in their field and you know bluegrass and old-timey and country music i mean it really you know was just uh you know they weren't meant to be a laughing stock and they certainly weren't when they were on stage they were really pretty well respected but it was this kind of thing that was you know once again kind of putting together different roots you know of the music so
1: Well, even at that tune, before I mentioned, you know, a bunch of keys, the one I was playing. That tune, actually, um, it was funny. In one late night session with incredible Ralph Blizzard, uh, wonderful, um, God rest his now soul, but he was from uh, a Tennessee area and and a great old-timey fiddler. And he said to me, that tune that I played in the session, he said, Eileen, he says, I won't tell you what. That tune is known as Patty on the Turnpike. <laughs> and he had learned it down south, and you'll hear the similarities. Yeah.
2: There.
1: So, obviously, the highly ornamented <clears throat> Irish fiddle, form you know you could hear like the 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 raw data of just the tune and the notes in there that became you know part of the the melody of the southern style and then of course then they had just this amazing like double stops and this slightly different swing and and all so yeah very connected
0: very 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 much so and also i mean just even to go back before the uh the bog road beyond the bog road but also you know crossing the bridge too that was sort of another kind of evolutionary thing where you were just mixing different music and the forms that you had been involving. And that was a pretty I think that kind of sent a signal about you and your music, you know, where you were going to uh in terms of her direction and how inclusive you were becoming. And this is, you know, just sort of setting up moving towards the Americana thing, which is huge hit on the festival circuit now, whether the bluegrass Irish festival, Celtic, what have you. These are the kind of things people are looking for. But, um, and, and you're certainly a leader, recognized leader in that field. And one of the other things that people have come to recognize about you too is that your innovation. Now, talk about a lot was made of, uh, you know, Bob Dylan going electric, but <laughs> you went electric too with your, you know, the blue fiddle and lots of things that you, that are part of your, your performances these days on stage, everything. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and tell us about uh, how you made that transition and what um, you're doing?
1: Well, I, I thank you for, for mentioning, you know, the, the crossing the bridge record and, and that I, I, I played some of the electric on that record. That was um, with Sony classical and they were wonderful. They gave me um, a, a full leeway to do what um, I kind of wanted to. And it was incredible to work with the great Al Steve Gadd, a percussionist, drummer, uh, Randy Brecker. Um, oh my gosh, a host of incredible musicians. And, um, and it, it did. It, it, it did a lot of different, it crossed a lot of bridges, which I kind of wanted to do at the time. I had flamenco dance Maria from Maria Pacas from Riverdance on there. And and it, it uh, I remember meeting um, Timothy White, the incredible uh, gentleman who was the editor, I think, back in Billboard magazine back in the day. And I met him at a, a gig after I had played with the Chieftains at Carnegie Hall. There was a nice session afterwards and we chatted and he said, Eileen, that record is phenomenal. He said, do you realize you could go anywhere from that recording? Because you really went through jazz, to flamenco, to traditional Irish. You had this this these tunes that are bluegrass and, 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 and that. So that really kind of gave me a very uh, great kick into forming a group of musicians and touring through the years. The electric is something I, I love to play on stage with the acoustic and through the years, you know, this, of course, technology has come into the music and, and I think I've always, again, get back to the days of just what the violin can do, I, I've always been intrigued, Paul, that it can be a lead instrument, it could have a harmony, it can be a percussive instrument at times, it could play bass lines, it could be, um, you know, even a groove, so... It's something I, I I've I've kind of enjoyed exploring and, and and showcasing in concerts, and actually have have it set up here. Maybe if that's cool, I, I'll yeah. jump and play a little bit of a, just kind of a loop. I have a looper and a, a bunch of guitar effects pedals that, uh, again, I just enjoy. I think it's it's a, a bigger palette again to um, the violin at, at times to use, and um, I'll just show you guys. I'll just set up a couple of little. It's like a three loop station so i'll just set up a couple of different loops i'll show you and uh and then uh, there's a melody I'll, I'll bring out of it that i know you guys will, will know. so let me just jump back here and i'll play that okay. for you
2: guys
0: Great, great. There's some questions I see and hear from some people, so maybe we'll go to some some of those. Uh, uh, This is uh, from Elise McKenna. She says, I am self-taught on the fiddle and I learn by ear, but I often feel self-conscious among other musicians because I'm not classically trained and don't know how much in the way of theory or proper technique. Uh, Do you do any formal violin training alongside?" alongside the Irish fiddle and do you think a fiddle player should explore other types of training to better themselves Would you take up love with that? that question yeah. and
1: also thank you Elise I see uh uh thank you for being the person who inspired me to start playing the fiddle wow that's uh wonderful and I appreciate that and you know I I think um self-taught is great and I admire you because it's uh of course an instrument that it, it is tricky that the the old uh uh, fingers alone and in, in intonation is 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 tricky, but I think it's so important um, just that you're playing and to ha- have started to play. And I think alongside a quick a quick story, even when I do symphony shows, I'm not classically trained at all. And we we have one coming up this coming weekend, and and I sit, you know, when I'm standing in front of these incredibly trained classical players that can read anything and play and anything in it with incredible accuracy and 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 the sight reading is amazing and it's at times very humbling and and i often think wow you know um i feel sometimes uh so humble that you know coming from a folk tradition but then you'll hear something wonderful from them that wow you can improvise how do you get your brain to think about leaving the dots and 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 improvising and doing something like that so i think that's um it's, we all have the talents, so so keep playing, go to sessions, Elise. Uh keep enjoying it, having fun, and we're all the same. It's there's different ways to to do this and 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 just keep rocking it. I'm proud of you.
0: Uh Frida Turin says, uh she noticed that your use of ornamentation. Uh is that particular to the mayo style of fiddling? Uh it adds such depth to even the most simple of tunes. But
1: it it does, um, Fred uh, and I think it's not really Mayo tradition. I, I You know, it's it's really in a lot of areas of Irish music. If you talk fiddle tradition, um, Claire has an awful lot of uh, left-hand ornaments. Uh, Donegal might be a little bit more known for their right-hand bow trills and, and playing. There's a great band, Alton, Um So many great players up there if you want to check out. That's a really uh, strong style of, of uh, very highly rhythmic playing. Martin Hayes is a great uh, County Clare player, one of the very well-known musicians from there, a host of others, but um, that has maybe typically slower tempo in style, but a lot of ornaments, uh, Freda, um, the, the grace notes, rolls, which rolls are five notes, um, which I use an awful lot of rolls on the left hand only. So maybe... A of rolls there. Maybe some bow work, which is all right
2: hand.
0: So
1: I, I love the mix of both. Um, and I think that's something It was one great thing about the competition years for me earlier is like, you really got to think about how you were ornamenting. And I was a little bit mi- maybe analytical about it, but I loved mixing a lot of left-hand ornaments and right-hand and variating, vari- varying them a lot, doing a lot of variations in not only the melody, but in the ornaments. So you're right. It makes the tune more interesting. It's a little bit of its own Improv. And it's like you rediscovering the tune each time. So great, great question.
0: Here's another question that we talked, we only touched on it briefly, as we don't have enough time to cover all these things here. But Seamus Egan was, has appeared in this forum earlier, you know, and um, he talked about the Irish music scene in the nineties and, um, and that you were a big part of it. He, he uh, admitted. So uh, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this, uh, the query comes in. And have you two ever worked together? Have you ever worked together? <laughs> um. We have to give we have to give some credit. I think to Mick Maloney, we kind of glossed over him a little bit. But you know, obviously, it was very important for Cherish. But also his ensemble, Greenfields of America. You know, he would have founded it based on playing with the other immigrants from Ireland. You know, but then he kind of turned over the band a little bit, and it really started to feature in Irish Americans like yourself and Seamus Egan, Jimmy Keane and what have you. And, uh, Absolutely. you know, at that point. So it was, that was in the 80s going into the 90s. But what you guys had in the 90s was you really, you were rocking the scene. You were rocking the Irish music scene. And you were finding an audience both in recordings and also festivals and concerts. That was really kind of, talk a little about that about
1: that. I'd love to. Um, and, uh, the quick thing uh, before t- t- I'd love to chat about Seamus, um, cause he was a huge part of my playing and a great, great friend, um, Mick Maloney and, and Poi mentioned, uh, with Greenfields who established that. And then in, in the eighties, I was a part of Greenfields, Seamus Egan, Jimmy Keene, and Jimmy Keenan, you mentioned, Robbie O'Connell, also the dancers in, in Greenfields. And I remember when I, again, first got into the whole Riverdance scene, um, Jean Butler, the first lead, uh, a female lead in Riverdance, and Michael Flatley even danced with Greenfields. And I remember having an interview with the Irish Times, and uh, when Riverdance was really happening in in Dublin, and I said, you know, this was being done in in the states, and this fellow Mick yep. Maloney really saw that this is a thing. And and I remember Mick ringing me after that. And he says, "Thank you, Eileen, for just kind of showing him that again the nice story of it, because Mick did have the insight to." to see how the dance affected folks. So he was a a huge part Mick, of course. And Seamus was a big part living in Philly and and kind of Mick being his mentor, as I've heard Seamus mention. Seamus and I, then when Seamus moved up to New York, we started playing more. And uh, we had a great little session thing down in uh, Patty Riley's Music Bar and 2nd Avenue and uh, 28th Street. And, uh, Seamus wanted to call it the Monday night quartet, which I thought was a great name. Actually, uh, myself, Seamus, John Doyle, wonderful guitarist. I should go. He's, he's a lefty. And, uh, Kamate Denizulu, who was this incredible African percussionist I had heard at, at, at a festival out in, um, oh gosh, it was out in Queens. It was a world music festival. He was sitting atop a five foot foot drum with his amazing African ensemble, all percussion ensemble. I heard Kamate, I threw the fiddle down uh, in, the, in the case beside me, and I just heard the music, jigs and reels of Irish music, being played on top of this incredible groove. We lost Kamate. Uh, he, he he passed on at a very young age after. Um, I'm, I'm not sure of his year now, but uh, that was such a big part of the the playing that we, we just had a great time um, really um, playing tunes together and just Seamus as, a, as an instrumentalist. One of my favorite duet partners because we can just, and I think still, you know, we would know where the other one is going, and that's something that I find very sacred. If if I felt he was going to go on a certain, maybe um, rhythmic foray, I would try to do something quickly that right. would complement it. If Seamus was holding these notes, maybe he w- was egging me on to do something a little bit in a different way, and that's something that is just a duet partner you find. Very, very rarely I think in life. And I, I just love the person and, and the player. You just yeah, you just yeah. for Seamus.
0: Uh one other question here. Any tips for emphasizing the downbeat?
1: Yeah, good question. Downbeats typically damn down bows, doesn't have to be. Um, but um, you know, with the music bowing and in, in the fiddle part of it has to be very fluid and, and you really kinda wanna never plan your bows, that's for sure. Um but so be able to do that. <laughs> Um, I think just feeling the music again. If it's a real, you're not gonna do a downbeat on you know every every beat.
2: It,
1: you know that would be too much. So you don't want that obviously. But every once in a while, you want to swoop into that downbeat and really give it a lot of. I always like to say um, really rhythm and, and swell of the bow. You know, going from a nice soft. To a swell and a faster bow, harder tension. So, for example, that's a good tip to get into a downbeat if you go. So, it just brings out the life of that downbeat. So, I would say again, just swells, faster bow on that, really get into that. And especially when you're just a, a solo instrument. And, and you're playing for people, it, it exudes the feel of the music. And it, it, it if there's dancers or people want to tap their feet, which we do with Irish music, we didn't talk about the slow air tradition or any of that, but of course that's in there too. But that's a big part of the downbeats anyway. Swells, get into it, up, downs, mostly downbeats, down bows, excuse me, helps.
0: It, it was a pretty poignant uh, last appearance for you before the pandemic. Wasn't it you were doing the symphony gate, weren't you? Um, I'm not sure where, but some, why don't you tell us a little bit what that was like and how. Sure, sure,
1: Paul. We'll we'll we'll, we'll kind of, I guess, end on this, this note because, it, it, yes, the pandemic hit. We had a new record, Scatter the Light, that was coming out the next day. Um, and I've reconciled saying, well, Scatter the Light, the new record is about positivity and, and and hope and working through difficult times. So it's interesting that it's coming out resurging now um but we were on the stage with the Colorado Philharmonic and um we were told of course it it wasn't safe to continue so the orchestra members weren't even called that evening and i remember it was a theater in the round it was beautiful 2000 seater 360 degrees and we took a a quick video i was asked to to explain to the audience that we couldn't continue And they had a solo spotlight on. I played something and then it opened up to just all the empty seats. And again, orchestra seats empty and it was chilling because none of us of course knew at the time how impacting this would be. And then roll on years later, we just about last week rebooked with the Colorado Philharmonic. We're going to be on that same stage in November. (laughs) Um, We are thankfully coming out and, and playing thankfully safely to many, many crowds. We just finished a December tour. World Music Institute, of course, Symphony Space with the Great Dervish, March 5th. We're excited. The, the great organizations like World Music Institute, they've kept the light on. They've kept it going through Zooms, through online, through um, working through it safely and putting the concerts on when they can. Some great orchestras, we we just played with Portland up in Maine. They they actually helped give their <clears throat> orchestra members sustenance uh, financially to, to keep going and when they were dark. So the stages were... Lit in many many ways. We're just thrilled to come out there now and then in, in in the next while and play again. We need it. We need music. We need art. And can I thank you guys so much for joining us? Because Paul, thanks for the questions. Thanks for the chat. Thank you so much for inviting us to be a part of this and, and yes. to uh, yeah.
2: Yes. Yes. And and and, and, and uh, great to be part of it.